0: Would you take your Bibles with me and join me in Romans chapter 16? We're going to be going to various passages today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6 where Dave read to us this morning in our scripture reading. We'll be in First Timothy as well. Last week we began these two verses and we kind of are bogging down in them for a specific reason. This past summer we ordained as a church elders from among the congregation to serve you in the leadership of the church and those elders are working together looking at our constitution bylaws as well as the scripture Wanting to formulate together um, what we believe the scripture has to say about another office, a parallel office in the church that many times is referred to as a deacon. A deacon. And um, that word deacon comes from a Greek word, diakonos, from which we get a transliterated English term, it's not a translation. It's a transliteration. So the word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos. Like we have an English word, I used this before when I think about transliterations, the difference. Like we get an English word, Lariata or lariat. Lariat, if you translate the Mexican, the Spanish, Lariata that word, a translation of lariata, is a catch-rope, a catch-rope. But if you get a transliteration, you get a lariat. And so in a similar way, we have a Greek word diakonos that is transliterated into the English language, deacon. But the meaning of that word is to serve or to minister. When we read in the scripture this morning in Acts chapter 6, you see some men that are chosen by the congregation to deal with a very specific problem and task in the congregation to serve the church, to minister to the church. And so we are thinking about that today. So as we began to look at this text last week, we got an overview of the text. And we'll do that again real quickly here in just a minute to see what is going on, so it gives us a framework. But then the other thing that we are doing in this passage is we are looking at the implications in this text for church government structure at large, but then also specifically regarding the role of women and men in the church. And there again, we could take like months to do this, and we could go more in depth than I'm going to be going today, This is going to be an overview. We've taught on it before. You've heard me explain this and expound it before. This is by way of review and reminder. And so I hope that these things are important to us as we think of the implications for us as a church here today as we think about the office of the minister. Now let's look in the text. Let's look in Romans chapter 16. Remember, Paul is just coming off a section where he's detailed his plans for the future, and now as he is closing his letter, he's just running through his memory bank as the Holy Spirit brings different people to his mind, and he knows different people that are in the church at Rome, and he mentions things about them. And beginning in verse 1 of chapter 16, and going through sixteen, verse 16, we have an extensive list of Paul simply saying to Christians, greet this person. This person did this for me. This person did that for me. And he's relaying personal information about many Christians in the church at Rome. But he begins it in verse 1 and 2 by talking about a woman named Phoebe. Notice what he says. I commend. Now notice the word commend. We talked about this last week. That is a specific word that is chosen to be a part of a reference or a letter of referral. It is a specific commendation. He's not just saying to them, she's a good person, I commend her to you. This is a specific letter of reference. Paul uses this word, in 2 Corinthians, to relay it in those same terms, and he is making a referral to them. He says, I commend to you our sister. Her name is Phoebe. She is a minister or a servant or a deaconess of the church at Sancria. Now, I explain to you, Sancrea is the port of Corinth. So, Corinth and Sancria, are inextricably linked as a commercial center. When Paul planted the church at Corinth, Sancria also got a church. She is in that portion of the church that is about nine miles away from Corinth. She is a minister or a minister or a servant of that church. He tells the Christians in Rome, welcome her in the Lord, receive her in a way that is worthy of the saints, and then help her in whatever she may need from you. And then he says of her in the past, she has been a patron. Now, a patron is somebody who underwrites someone else's expense at their own expense. So she has been a patron, he says, of many and of myself as well much like Lydia, who we looked at last week, and the women in Luke's gospel who were patrons of our Lord and of his disciples during Jesus' earthly ministry. It says there specifically in Luke's gospel that there was a group of women who served as the patrons who underwrote the expenses of the disciples as they went with Jesus and they ministered on his behalf. That's the text. There's a lot of things that we drew out of the text last week. This week, though, we want to talk about some of the implications we see here for church government and structure and the role of women in the church. Now, my premise I gave to you last week that's important to note is this phrase, a diakonos... Ooh, hold on, I've got to turn my pen on. A diakonos, or a minister of the church, is a verbal way that Paul is telling the church that not only has Phoebe served the church at Sancria in an official capacity before, but she is now his authorized agent to bring the letter that he has just written that we have been studying. She is bringing that letter to the church at Rome. That's a remarkable thing. That Paul has written this letter, these 16 chapters. He has put it in the keeping of a woman named Phoebe, and she is taking it to the leadership of the church in Rome. So she has served the church in an official capacity as an authorized agent in the past, And now she is an authorized agent to bring this letter that he has written to the church at Rome. When he says this phrase, she is a servant, she is a minister, she is a deaconess of the church. That's a pretty specific phrase. It's a pretty specific phrase. It's a very specific way to say she is acting in an official capacity for the church. He doesn't just say she's a servant of the Lord, or she's just a servant, she's just a minister. No, he says she is a minister of the church. Think of that prepositional phrase that he attaches to the word a minister. She is a minister of the church. Now having said that, when we think about this and my core contention, what I want to talk about, what I want to argue today, the case that I want to present to you, as we study scripture, we think about this text and others, the case that I want you to consider today, the argument is this. What I want to persuade you you're thinking of, and the reason I want to persuade you this way is because many people have very different view about what a deacon is. A lot of people even have a lot of different strong feelings as to whether or not women should be deaconesses, whether there should be deaconesses. And what does this look like, and how does this work in the church? And I want to raise some questions in your thinking, and I'm not necessarily even saying I have all the answers to how this flushes out, but I hope it's part of the conversation that you then have with your elders as we work to develop a structure that works well for us as a church community and is also faithful to Scripture. Many people just look at deacons as a parallel board that serves alongside an elder board. The elder board does the spiritual stuff and the deacon board does the physical stuff, the temporal stuff. Takes care of the benevolence. Is that really the biblical model? And where do we get that concept? What is a deacon? What does he do? What does she do? And one of the things that I want to draw your attention to as we look at this When we look at the available data in the New Testament, God doesn't go anywhere in the New Testament and give us, quote-unquote, a job description of a deacon. There's no job description. There's only what? Qualifications. Qualifications. The job description is pretty open-ended. The qualifications are very specific. Now, in your bulletin, in the handout that's in your bulletin, I made a list of all the various qualifications of all of the various offices in the church. And I just put them there. I made the font real small, so you may have to get your magnifying glass. But I wanted to get it on one piece of paper, on one half of a piece of paper, of all things. But all the qualifications are there. Elders, bishops, pastors. There's a list of them in Titus chapter 1. There's a list in 1 Timothy chapter 3. There's some things said in 1 Peter. There's deacons. There's also deaconesses. And there's also a big list of qualifications for widows. Well, I thought the only qualification to be a widow was to lose your spouse, right? That's kind of the way we define the term, but not the way the early church looked at it. The way the early church looked at it, a person who was a widow not only had lost their spouse, if the church was going to care for them, there were certain qualifications that had to be met by that widow for the church to take her on, under its wing, and to provide all of her care. And then they expected certain things of her. All that's there on that sheet. You don't have to take the time to look at it, but I want you to note there, there's not in that list a whole lot of duties and job descriptions. But there's a ton of character traits qualifications, the type of person that God is looking for. Now, as we look at this, and we go through it quickly this morning, my contention is that there are certain things in the Bible that characterize what we're going to call a rightly ordered church. Now, right away, we could say from that, there are some churches that are not ordered right. They're not ordered right. For a church to be rightly ordered, it has to conform to the biblical teaching, the standard that Scripture sets. What makes a church in this regard either rightly ordered or poorly ordered or wrongly ordered? Let's think about some, content, some things that I would contend. Number one, we would say that in the New Testament, there are two offices that are taught. Two offices. These two offices are, number one, the office of Pastor Elder Bishop. We talked about that a lot this summer, so I'm not going to take a lot of time to review But these three words are all used synonymously to describe the same individual. He's a shepherd. Elder speaks of his maturity in the Lord and in life. He has a platform from which to give wisdom to the church. He's lived in the Lord long enough to have some wisdom and for that to be modeled. And then he is an overseer. That's what he does. The word bishop Episcopos just means he gives oversight. That's literally what the word means. Then there's this other office, and it is a minister, a deacon, a servant. Same word, diaconia, diakonos, and it just speaks of someone who is doing ministry. This one then is someone who oversees ministry, and this is someone who, Who does it? Okay? Basically what we say. Now, the contention would then be that everybody who is serving as an authorized agent of the church should be qualified here in one of those two ways. That's very important. Let's say the church someday hired a receptionist. She's going to sit and she's going to take your phone calls. She's going to answer the phone. Do you want somebody answering the phone that is a gossip? Do you want... No, you do. (laughs) You are nodding yes. (laughs) Do you want somebody that's double-tongued? Do you want somebody that's a slanderer? Do you want you want somebody who's always looking for another man than her husband? No, you don't, do you? You want somebody in that position that fulfills the qualifications that God has given us for a deaconess. She's ministering. She is serving the church. She's not serving a corporation. She's not serving your business. She's serving what? The church of the living God. And someone who serves the church of the living God is to meet the qualifications he gives in that list. She's not to be a flirt with every guy that comes in the door. She's not to be double-tongued. So what what I want you to see is every official agent of the church fits into these two offices somewhere for it to be a rightly ordered church. Now, this first office in the New Testament is exclusively male. We could look at a lot of places to argue that. We'll look at a couple. The second office is both male and female. The first has the responsibility of oversight. The second accomplishes the work of the ministry. By the way, that does not mean that the first one doesn't do anything, that he's just like the supervisor on the job that leans on his shovel all day and says, go do this, go do that. No, that's not what it means at all. But he does give oversight, right? Um, You know, I, I hope there never comes a day where a pastor, an elder, a bishop of this church would think that they're so high and mighty that if they come in the door and there's a bunch of trash on the floor that it's beneath them to go and pick it up. You know, we're not talking about that kind of stuff. But we are talking about roles. So the role of the elder is to oversee. The minister, the servant, the deacon, the deaconess does the work. This is laid out in the Book of Ephesians, chapter four, when it talks about how the uh, the pastor teacher is to equip the saints for what purpose? The work of ministry, the work of the diaconate. Now Phoebe then serves as a perfect illustration of these roles. That's what Phoebe's doing. She's serving the church. She's ministering. She is ministering. She's not taking oversight. She's not preaching. She is serving. So she is looked on as a deaconess of the church. So rightly ordered churches, let's think about this in First Timothy. Why don't you take your Bible and flip over to First Timothy? First Timothy is six chapters. I don't know what it was two years ago, three years ago, before the book of Romans. We studied through First Timothy. And I want to remind us of some things that we studied as we went through First Timothy. In 1 Timothy, there are six marks of a scripturally ordered church. Paul says in chapter 3, in verse 14, he says, I am writing these things to you, though I hope I'm going to get to come see you shortly. Paul wants to come to Ephesus to see Timothy. He says, I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I am writing to you so you should know, you would know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, and the house of God is the church of the living God, and the church of the living God is the pillar and buttress of the truth. It pillars, it supports it, and it sustains it. A buttress. You know what a flying buttress is? From architecture, it stands outside a tall wall and it supports that wall to keep it from blowing out. It is a buttress. So the church's responsibility, the church's work, is that it is a pillar that upholds the church and sustains the church or the truth as a pillar and a buttress. And he says, I want you to know how you should. Conduct yourself in order, in other words, he's talking about being a rightly ordered church. He gives us six things that make for a rightly ordered church. Number one, in chapter one, a rightly ordered church is committed to sound doctrine. And we won't look through that chapter because I don't got near the time. Number two, a rightly ordered church is consecrated for the purpose of prayer. And it talks about public worship in chapter 2. It is controlled by godly people in chapter 3. Thus, in chapter 3, we have all these qualifications for those who are in the office of a bishop and those who are in the office of a deacon and a deaconess. It is conscious of seductive spirits. It says at the beginning of chapter 4, I want you to be aware that in the last days, seducing spirits will be rampant on the earth and they will take you from the truth. We should not live expecting that there is a demon behind every bush. But my friend, we better be conscious that Satan is alive and well and he is doing everything in his power to undermine what God is doing at EBC. Satan longs to destroy this work. We need to be conscious of that and we need to be aware of it. Many of these things come our way very innocently and very culturally accepted and they work their way into churches and they are a tool of Satan that he uses to destroy the work of God. We are to be conscious of that. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places Paul says in the book of Ephesians. We are to be conscious of it. Chapter 5 he talks about how A rightly ordered church is compassionate and caring for its members. So he talks about widows, and he talks about elders. He says you don't receive an accusation against an elder unless there are two or three witnesses. And then you treat them fairly the way you would treat anybody else. You treat them compassionately. So there is compassion in the treatment of the membership of the church, There is, yes, a resolve to hold people to biblical standards, but we do so in love, committed to one another in Christ. Chapter 6, church needs to be content with its station in life and in the kingdom. You know, we are who we are. We ain't the church you came from in California, right? We're not. This is Star Valley. We are who we are. He talks a lot about contentment. You know, and one of, the, one of the things that is important to learn in life is to just be who you are, to, to be who you are for the glory of God, to don't wish you were someone else, to don't wish this church was something that it isn't. It's not. We need to be content with who we are in this community, in the place of the kingdom. We need to grow. We need to get better. We need to do things as well as we can But we are who we are, and we should be content with that. And all through chapter 6, he talks to Christians of his day, and he says, be content, be content, be content. He doesn't mean be lazy, don't do your best. That's not what he means, but he does mean have a settled sense of peace, that you are in the center of God's will doing what God has called you to do, and you do it the best you can for his glory. Be content. So this is what a rightly ordered church looks like. Now, let's look at chapter 2 and 3. I told you to go to First Timothy. Let me catch up. I'll get over there. And I want you to go with me to chapter 2. And I'm just going to do a real quick outline of some things that are here. What, the first thing that I want you to notice is in chapter 2, he begins this chapter. Let's start at the way he begins the chapter. First of all, I urge you that supplications and prayers and recessions, thanksgivings, be made for all people, for all our kings and those who are in high positions, so that we could lead a quiet and peaceable life. So he says that we are to devote ourselves, we are to be consecrated for prayer. And then as he goes into this chapter, when he gets to verse 8... He says, so, because of that, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. And then notice the word likewise. The word likewise is His way of signaling in the original language that that same governing desire applies to the woman. So he says, I desire that in every place men pray. Then when he says in verse 9, likewise, you could take that same phrase and put it in verse 9 and say it this way. I desire that in every place the women should pray. And when the women pray, what does he want them to do? They should be adorned in respectable, modest apparel. They should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, golds or pearls or costly attire. Sorry, I'm not preaching at you if you wore some jewelry today. I'm not preaching at you if you braided your hair when you came to church. None of those things are in that verse the way we are thinking of them necessarily. What he's saying in those verses is something they all understood in that culture. We kind of understand it. And it's kind of this thing like, you know, dress to impress. You know, like there were women that were coming to the church and they were just dressing in ways that would draw attention to who they were. So that when they came through the door, people would look at them and say, wow, she's got a lot of money. She can break gold into her hair. And what he's saying is, don't come to church to flaunt your wealth. Don't come to church to flaunt your body. Come to church to worship God. Come to church to worship. You don't come to church to show yourself off, either your physical beauty and your body, and you don't come to church to show off your wealth. You come to church to worship God. So when you come, ladies, to pray... To the place of prayer, you come adorned. Yes, please adorn yourself. You know, don't come in your PJs. Please comb your hair. You know, please put on some makeup. Praise the Lord. Put on some, you know, do a good job. But don't come here to show yourself off. God's on display here, not you. That's what he's getting at. And we could say the same thing to us guys. When we come to church, we don't come to quarrel and to bicker, to be angry with one another. We're to lift up our holy hands that have been made holy in the Lord, but we come to the place of prayer. He then goes from that to some very specific instructions. In verse 11, he says, Let a woman learn peacefully, quietly. Earlier in the chapter, he says we should desire to live a quiet life. And so we pray for our governing authorities. When we think of the word quiet there earlier in the chapter, he is talking about peace, a settled life. It's nice to live in peace, isn't it? Aren't you glad you don't have to put up with what they're going through in Ukraine? We live at peace. And he says, I want women to learn peacefully. Not contentiously. Not argumentatively. I want women to learn peacefully. Now, that's kind of radical in the ancient world because he says, I want women to be able to go to school. I want women to learn. I want women to be taught. I don't want women to be dumb. That's not what Paul says. He says, I don't want women to be dumb. I want people to I want the women to learn. So that's a positive command. Let a woman learn peacefully and submissively. And then we notice in the text there are two permanent restrictions that are placed on women in the church. Two permanent restrictions. One is the office of the overseer, the other is the public teaching of God's Word. So he says here, I do not permit a woman to teach, to be in the position. The noun form there doesn't just mean to teach, like to do teaching. He's not saying it's forbidden that a woman ever teach. But he's saying, I do not allow a woman to be the office of the teacher or to exercise authority, to be an overseer. Over the man, rather she has remained quiet, and then he gives the reasons for it. And I'm going to skip them because of time. We've studied this before. This is just review. There are two permanent restrictions on women in the church in this passage. He says, I forbid women to be in the role or the office of the pastor. That is why the eldership of the church is male. He also forbids that a woman would stand in the pulpit and preach, proclaim corporately to the church the Word of God, doing an expository sermon teaching God's Word. That doesn't mean that it's wrong for a woman to get up and give a testimony, to share what the Lord is doing in her life, and all those things. And there are contexts in which women are to teach. But what we're talking about is the public teaching of the Word of God to the church. There are also in this passage, when we get to chapter 3, there are two specific church offices. And I mentioned this before. All authorized agents of the church are foreseen in these categories. So notice chapter 3. And I want you to look here at the structure of the text. I want you to look in your Bible with me at this, or in your iPad whatever you have, wherever you have your Bible, on your phone. But I want you to look at the passage, because this is important. I'm not trying to bore you. I hope you're tracking with me this morning as we think about these things, because these are important for us as a church as we build structure that glorifies the Lord. He gives us qualifications, and I want you to notice the word likewise. We already saw the likewise in chapter 2. But notice what he says. In chapter 3, verse 1, And going through verse 7, he begins at the beginning by saying, If anyone aspires to the office of the overseer, he is desiring a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be blameless, above reproach. And you have the list of these things in your bulletin. Go to verse 8. Deacons, likewise. He's talking about an office. He's telling us that with the word likewise. He's talking about an authorized agent of the church. Deacons must be dignified. You've got the list in your bulletin. I'm not going to read through them. They're character traits. Now look at verse 11. Their wives, likewise must be dignified. Notice the word, likewise. After talking to the wife or the woman, and I'll explain that in a minute, in verse 12, he says, let deacons each be the husband. So he comes back to the deacon. Now, there are some important things to notice in the structure of the text. The first list is to the bishop first seven verses go to him. Verse 3, in the middle of that, he does not direct anything to the wife of the bishop. Did you notice that? That's specific. God does not make mistakes. In verses 1 to 7, when he is talking to the overseers, he is talking exclusively to the male or to men. When you get to verse 8, and you go to verse, what was it, 13, he breaks in the middle in verse 11, and he talks to women. Now, that word there, wife, it's often disputed how that should be translated. Here's the noun. That's a gamma, upsilon, nu, ada. Gune, sorry ladies, you're goons, gunes, that's the Greek word, anybody hear the word gynecological, gynecology, gune, that's where that word comes from, so when you think about these medical terms in our culture today that refer to women, they use this word gune, gynecological, da 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 da, Now, that's the word. Should it just simply be translated women, or should it be translated wife? By the way, there is no Greek word that means wife. It's only woman. It's man and woman. So what you see is this context all the time, it just refers to a man's woman. So a man's woman is his wife. That's the way we think of it. But in the Greek language, I just use the woman, the word woman. So I could say to Amy, come on, woman, right? Come on, my woman, you're my woman. She's going to hit me later right? She's my woman, and I'm her man. So, I am a what? One woman man, right? I'm a one woman man. I'm devoted to her. She's my wife. So, that's the word. So, is it a woman or a man? Is it or a woman or a man? Is it a woman or a wife? It's both. Clearly, a deacon's wife should also Fulfill those qualifications. But you could have women in the church who have unbelieving husbands who also could fill that role. And he gives us some things for us to think about qualifications for her. Okay? We won't go through all the qualifications there, but that's what i meant. Now, there was a recent flap. I talked about this a little bit last week with Saddleback Community Church that um, many in the Southern Baptist Convention wanting to vote them out, disfellowship them from the convention because they have been ordaining women pastors. And the way they get around it is by a nuance of definition that they're trying to use to say, well, as long as she's not a senior pastor, it's okay. Very dangerous to go that direction because you're calling someone something that the Bible says they are not. Women are ministers. They are not pastors. They are not overseers. They are ministers. They minister according to the biblical parameters, but they're not pastors. And so Saddleback has made a huge mistake in going that direction. To stay the course, we shouldn't be looking for loopholes, and we shouldn't be blurring lines. Whenever we blur lines and we look for loopholes, that comes from a guy named Jonathan Lehman, who's at Nine Marks, gave those two concepts in an article I read whenever we're blurring lines and we're looking for loopholes, we are setting ourselves up as a church to get away from Scripture. Now, we need to avoid the pitfalls. We should never place women in positions that God has restricted them from. But we should also allow women and encourage women in our midst for you to serve and to do what God has called you to do in the way that God has called you. We should empower you. We should equip you and call you to do it. Now, go with me to Acts 6. And we're going to do this really quick. Like, really quick. Because you want to go watch football in a few minutes. In this chapter, the apostles are acting as overseers of the church. The apostles are taking this position yet. There are no bishops and elders. But in Acts chapter 1, the apostles call themselves bishops in Acts chapter 1. They call themselves that. So the apostles are acting as the overseers of the church. This text does not instruct us that the full work of ministers is benevolence, caring for widows. That's not the point of this text. Not the only thing that ministers do. If you want to know what ministers do, get out of concordance and look at the word ministry and see what ministers do. This text does give us a specific situation where ministers are meeting the needs of widows. We've read the text already. This text does not suggest that a minister's work is to oversee physical things and an elder to oversee spiritual things. It is true that the overseers say... It is not right for us to leave the ministry of the word and prayer and serve tables. But he is not saying that it is exclusively the work of a minister to do the physical things and the work of an elder to oversee spiritual things. He's not saying that. What does Acts 6 teach us? It teaches us that the elder's work is to oversee everything. Everything. Everything they oversee this situation with the widows and then the elders work is to delegate the carrying out of the work to qualified ministers which is exactly what they did how did the apostles solve the problem as we bring this to a close this morning just think about this we read this chapter this morning i got to explain everything you got the hellenists and the hebrews That sounds like a good football team. The Hellenists against the Hebrews. Okay, the Hellenists were Jewish people in Jerusalem and in Judea and in the culture who had embraced Greek thinking. They were Hellenists. The Hebrews are Jewish believers who have stayed true to the Hebraic customs of the law. The Hebrews look at the Hellenists like they're a bunch of compromising, weak, lily-livered believers who are going along with the world. The Hellenists look at the Hebrews like they're a bunch of legalists. Same debates we got going on. Anyway, the Hellenists are feeling like their widows are being overlooked. I'll tell you what, this situation has every potential to be the worst church split in history. This could have ended in a train wreck, but it doesn't. You get to the end of the section, it says the church is growing and believers are being added, and there's a joyous spirit among the church. The apostles are able to solve this problem creatively with, and avoid a church split. Number one, they hear the problem. The apostles were approachable. They don't disregard it. They don't ignore it. They may have thought it was stupid. They may have thought, no, those widows are getting all the food. Why are they complaining? These people are just complaining all the time. No, they listen. They don't ignore it. That was the first step towards solving the issue. If the apostles had turned them away and not listened, they would have only made the divide worse. They listened. That's important for leadership. Secondly, they meet to discuss the problem and to find out the legitimacy of the grievance. It says in the text they were overlooked. They're not saying that they did it intentionally. No, it's neglect. It was neglect. And so, they meet to discuss the problem to find out the legitimacy of the grievance They come up with a plan to fix the problem, to meet the need, they communicate back to the church, and they delegate the task. Now, what's intriguing here, after listening to the complaint, they seek a solution that allows the congregation to fix it, don't they? They let the congregation own the fix. And the congregation comes up with seven ministers who fit the qualifications in the list. Did you notice that? Remember that? And Dave read all the names? Timon and Parmenas, all these guys that are hard to communicate to, to, to say their names. But think about the seven people that are chosen: Stephen, who becomes a martyr? What's going on out there? A moose? A moose? <laughs> wow. Oh, look at him. Um, I. Right what was I saying? Every one of the guys they chose was a Greek. That's the end of the the study. This is intriguing. Every one of the seven they choose is from the side that is feeling neglected. My friend, that was wisdom. Because they say, we're not going to put a bunch of people to fix this that are on the Hebrew side. We're going to let the people fix this who are on the side that is feeling aggrieved, and they let them fix it. We're going thank to thank you, Lord, prayer. for this day. Dismiss us with your love. Thank you for your creation that you make that we can enjoy. We love it here in Wyoming to see these animals that you created for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.